Hello, and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week. Please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at Austin Art Talk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Four years ago, when she hit a low point in her life, artist Caitlin McCollum could not have imagined that today she would be a full-time artist with a successful career. She had wanted to be an artist her whole life and always had a strong compulsion to create. Starting from scratch, she knew one of the important things to cultivate would be her point of view and how to convey what she wanted to say, along with her ability to stay inspired. In this interview, we talk about the meaning behind her art and the technique, but also quite a bit about business, social media, tools, strategies, and the kinds of advice she gives to her interns about being an artist. Please enjoy this fantastic episode full of inspiring and practical information. Here's Caitlin. Well, Caitlin, thanks for being on my podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, well, we're actually neighbors in Canopy here in Austin, and I've been watching you not from afar, but pretty close by, and I'm very uh, interested in learning more about you and your work, and especially, I just have a sense from the communications that you do, your websites, your emails, your you know, ads. I've seen your ads on Instagram even, which is interesting. And I just feel like you're doing a great job on the business side, the business side of being an artist. And I'm really curious how you go about that too. Thank you. Um, but I was wondering maybe first, just to kind of get us started, if you could just get us acquainted with you and your work and maybe a little synopsis of kind of how you got to where you are now. Sure. Well, I um, I thought I was an artist from the time I was a, a little kid about, you know, I started telling everybody that I was an artist from the time I was knee high to a grasshopper. Okay. And um, then I studied, I, I didn't get a lot of support from my family or my school when I was younger, but when I decided to go to college. I knew I definitely wanted to major in painting. Yeah. And even though I wasn't really much of a painter at the time, but I went to Texas State University and I majored in painting and minored in art history. And I learned everything I know about art there yeah. um, right. just to, you know, a crash course and everything. And because uh, I grew up in Dripping Springs back when it was um, the middle of nowhere. It wasn't right. like the suburb that everyone knows about. It yeah. was population 1100 mm-hmm. and I lived out in the middle of 
bunch of ranches all around. There's nobody there. Yeah. Um, so did you use art as kind of like a way to pass the time because it was just so isolating or? No, it's it's always just been a compulsion. Ah. It's always just been something I, I had to do. I couldn't stop doing it. Did you see artists in the world or how did you even know what art was or what artists were? I wonder. That's a really good question. I, I don't even know. I just yeah. felt like I was always drawing and um, do you remember those like big rolls of paper um, that would be like a like this and you would roll it across. And so my mom actually got one of those for me eventually yeah. because she was like, she just needs something just so she can not stop. Just keep, <laughs> keep drawing. Wow. Okay. And then, um, and then when I was in school, I got in trouble all the time because I just wouldn't stop drawing on textbooks and my math homework. And yeah. I hated school and I did very poorly. Um, <laughs> so I just drew all the time. So then when I went to college, I, like I said, I majored in painting and I learned to really paint for the first time. Yeah. And, um, I had an amazing mentor there who's named, uh, J Derek Durham and mm. he's, um, a hard line, um, acrylic painter. He taught me, he taught me a lot about just painting and becoming an artist and helped me kind of get the confidence to kind of know like, okay, what do you actually do to be an artist? Because I didn't know that like you go yeah. to openings and you have shows. I mean, I still thought like artists had patrons yeah, <laughs> because that's how like disconnected like I was. Michelangelo or yeah. I was like, Oh, you know, like the Medici, like <laughs> some family in Westlake is going to adopt me and buy right. paintings from me. That's how it works. Right. No, yeah. no, no. So, um, I'm wondering what you could share with this, specifically from your mentor that might be helpful to hear, you know, some of the lessons. Well, there was the the most, probably the most influential thing that he told me was the best tool in the artist studio is the garbage can. Yeah. What does that mean to you? So it's like editing and trying things and it's like just throwing throwing it away. Yeah, yeah, You know, yeah. it's not scary to throw away art. It's yeah. not scary to throw away ideas. It's not scary to throw away Experiment. Th- yeah. yeah, and I mean, I kind of use that with, with my business too, where it's like, it's not scary to say no to something that I don't really like that much. Yeah, it seems like it's about that advice kind of comes down to just attachment. It's like mm-hmm. not being attached to certain things or ideas or a oh, I spent all this time on this painting and you're attached to it and you don't mm-hmm. want to move on. And you're like, no, this is it. You know, yeah. instead of just throwing it in the garbage and moving on. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And I think that it, like it's a physical thing, the garbage can, and it's and it's um, an emotional thing and it's a metaphorical thing. Mm-hmm. You know, physically with my work, it's, you know, make work and go through and look at it. And it's, you know, if it's not working, then, you know, my studio assistant or me will put a big red x through the middle of it and put it in the garbage can yeah. and it's okay to it's okay to get rid of it and yeah. what else from him let's see what else did he teach me it was like just the other thing that really sticks out in my mind was this fierce kind of survival instinct for the art world and one thing that I used to do, which I don't think they do this anymore. I don't think anyone would be allowed to do this in a classroom. Because <laughs> he would walk around the room and he would say, every single one of you is going to fail at this. Oh, geez. Except one of you. Who's it going to be? Which one of you is going to be the one that doesn't fail at this? 
Yeah. Like all of you are wasting your money on art school, except one of you. Who is it? Wow. And I always said like, that's me. I'm the one. <laughs> like, uh, hopefully it's everyone else was saying that too. Right? <laughs> hopefully everyone else was saying it. And I will say that the people, um, the other artists that I know from the years that I was at Texas state are doing incredible things. There's oh. a lot of them, a lot of them quit, but a lot of them carved a, their ways doing, doing other things. And I just, I mean, it's, it's good. I think I'm trying to think if I know other, any other artists from my class who are full time, but, but yeah, that was really influential. It really felt like there was this fierce kind of need to um, impress yourself, to take yourself seriously and to take the craft seriously. I'm not sure if he said this or somebody else did, but another thing that was really influential was, was that real artists don't, it was like, he had all these funny sayings I'm realizing now, but, um, real artists don't wait for inspiration. They clock in. So it's like, just do it. You know, it's like, don't wait for, and and I think that that's, that's true and false about clocking in. I think that it's more like what I've learned for myself is that, um, it's about that compulsion and it's about that need to create. And it's about, there was like a comic online where it was like, oh, you know, being an artist is like having a brain parasite. And I thought that's exactly (laughs) what it's like. You're either, you know, like you have to, it, you know, the brain parasite tells you what to do. Like you have to do this, whether or not you're making money from it, whether or not, you know, paintings are selling to anyone. It's like, I still got to do these weird things. I've still got to make these things. I've still got to say this stuff in this visual language. It's that maybe like clocking in for me would be more like, you know, you just make time for your compulsion. Yeah, you know, just, you just do the do work. It. I yeah, mean, it seems to be work. a huge theme in a lot of the interviews that I've done is this like people just work, 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 work. Mm-hmm. And it seems almost, I don't know why I have this idea that these days people more than anything just want the easy way. They want convenience. They want everything immediate gratification. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just, I know a lot of people work really hard, but I guess it's been interesting to see that theme with everyone. Yeah. Do the work, do the work, do the work. Do the work and listen to your compulsion and not, you know, to what you think you should be doing or something like that. And, you know, it's like, also you have to, you have to cultivate your own ability to be inspired and whatever that means. So in, in my work, it's like, I know exactly what kind of mood I have to be in to, Oh. For the art to it's like the art is like as if it were a a really majestic looking fox that wandered into my backyard. Yeah. And it's like <laughs> if you try to feed it, it runs away. If you try to pet it, it runs away. It's like don't, you know, just like stand and like let it come, like make the circumstances where it feels safe and welcome yeah. and then just stand back and watch it and don't try to force it to do anything. You know, as I become more mature as an artist, it's okay, how do I create those circumstances to cultivate the mood and the mental state that I need to be in to really connect with my vision as an artist? Yeah. What would your work look like, though, in those moments where you just kind of you say, I'm working between five and six o'clock, no matter what, I'm going to create some work? Would it just not have the same magic? Or, I mean, is that I just think of that aspect of just forcing yourself to work sometimes you know, you, maybe you can't find that mood, but you Mm -hmm. still want to work. You still need to do, create some work. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wonder how different that is than the work potentially. Well, it's, 
it can be done on a schedule for sure because it's like as you or as I mature as an artist, it's like, okay, I need to be listening to this kind of music. I need to uh-huh. ta- read this kind of book. I need to tap into this kind of mood, this kind of mental state. And then it's like, okay, four o'clock. All right, let's put yeah. on the okay. Lana Del Rey, which right. always does it for me. Okay, nice. <laughs> and put it on and just start going there. It's like it's like a meditation uh, almost. Okay. Um, so you know how to create the mood. You're not just like randomly waiting for it to just emerge. No, I'm not just like, oh, I'm in an art mood. Although sometimes <laughs> I am. Sometimes I am. And then I want to work during... And then I really want to work during those times. The brain parasite's really tickling. Yeah, then. yeah, yeah. But... If I need to, because I have some, you know, like I have a big commission or whatever, it's like now I've learned to create the circumstances for for it to come. And the only thing that I can't do that I've learned is I can't like make myself make a certain thing. Okay. Because I've tried that before. I've tried to I've tried to sort of like recreate certain paintings because because they were popular because but it's like as soon as I start trying to like force it, monetize it, oh. think about it in any kind of commercial way. It, I mean, I make really hot garbage. Okay. It's in the garbage can real the fast. X's on them. The X's, yeah. That's what happens. That was one thing I was kind of wondering about your work because, you know, a lot of your pieces, maybe all of them have very specific meanings, stories sometimes attached to them. I didn't know whether you were actually starting with the story or something you'd read or a book and then you're like, I'm going to create a piece about this or you create something kind of unconsciously, subconsciously, something comes out as you're creating and then you're kind of like, oh, that's about that. I wonder, does it go both ways or does it only go one way? It's it's kind of both. I would say more often I feel that my vision tells me what to make and it's kind of an unconscious process. I make the thing yeah, and then going back to think about them when they're dry, when they're finished, then I then I get a chance to really look at them and think about, you know, what have I been reading? What have I been thinking about? What have I been journaling about? What's kind of been coming up in my life and what sort of themes are emerging? And then it becomes really clear what it's about. Now, some of them, it's something very specific. Like Yeah, very th- specific. I'm thinking about this piece that I really, really love so much, um, and it's called "When You Awake, Your Body Is Covered with Dewdrops," mm. and it's a teardrop shaped. And that one was one that unconsciously was created, but it was so clear what it was about. It was about this idea that there are there's a difference between dreams and visions. And dreams, you know, it's like. Well, I was chasing my dentist, but he wasn't my dentist, and my, then my teeth fell out. You know, it's yeah. just like weird. But visions, it's like you've received a message. And a lot of times in spirituality, we talk about the dream state as being a way to experience God, a way to have that mystical encounter. Mm-hmm. And so that painting was about this idea that there's like two sides to the dream state and that you would know when you awoke that you had visited this mystical realm in your sleep because your body would be covered with dewdrops and the idea of passing through like a mist. So, so each of my paintings speak to different ideas about mysticism and spirituality and about spiritual encounter. And then some of them are about very specific kind of, mystical encounters yeah 
Maybe describe your work for someone that hasn't seen it. Like sure. So aesthetically. Um, so I make abstract paintings that are in the colors red and blue, and they're very vibrant, and they are um, a high-flow acrylic painted on a synthetic paper, which is a heat-pressed polypropylene, which is a fancy way of saying plastic paper, so the paper's very smooth. Yeah. And painting with acrylic suspended in liquid acrylic, so that's plastic and pigment and then suspended in a really liquidy plastic and painting with that medium on that material the synthetic paper is like painting on the surface of water it's very smooth Mm. so each of my paintings have this very watery look to them um, very much like liquid they have ripples like like liquid they have um, sort of puddles and places where the paint kind of spreads out And they're all hand-painted, so it's like this combination of intentionality with the work and this sort of release to chance, this release to um, just letting the the medium kind of do whatever it wants, but within this control. And so each of them are a specific archetypical shape from Jungian psychology, like teardrops, rectangles, orbs, loops, sometimes squares, and then the shape of the heart organ. So each of them is red and blue within those really, um, really hard edge outlines of them. Yeah. And a lot of white space. Yeah. Always with the, uh, the um, existential void kind of all around (laughs) each of them. And that's really speaking to the specific thing too. That's like spirituality is experienced in moments and it's, it's kind of like um, in my life that, you know, hopefully not too personal, but it kind of feels like the easiest thing to believe in is just this kind of casual nihilism Mm -hmm. where it's like, yeah, but it's all nothing. And, you know, like ever it, 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 but then there's these moments where it all feels so poignantly real and so meaningful. And I Mm. think that that's those moments whenever you um, whenever you stand on the edge of a precipice and look out over, you know, a beautiful forest or something and you just feel like, whoa, this is this is not all there is. Or um, and that's kind of like the everyday thing or like going in for heart surgery mm. and then you're really aware of your body and then like what's going to happen to me and and near death experiences are like that, too, or it's like really aware of the physical world and of your spiritual self and returning to have this story about something that happened to you that's kind of unbelievable but um so that's what each of the paintings are kind of about are these moments that we experience something beyond kind of the casual nihilism which sort of surrounds everything Uh, it's just it's always there but then it's like blip there's this moment where i really felt something or i really experienced something that was way beyond just schlepping around in my old car and yeah, what's this all about? That's kind yeah. of how I feel. <laughs> yeah, what's this? Yeah, what's this all about, and why, and to what end? And, yeah, you know. Do you seek out these moments, or do they just kind of surprise you, or do you create them? Um, I, I guess it could be all all of the above. It was um, spirituality is a pretty important part of my life, and then. In my work, though, I, I, it's not about me entirely. Um, certainly, they're personal kind of experiences. But then I want to be able to, you know, and that's why they're in those union archetypical shapes, those archetypes that I yeah. want them to, I want to talk about things that people, that everybody can, can know. Like that it's not resonate like, across 
Yeah. So I use stories of other people, like other people's near-death experiences, um, the mystics, saints, what did they, you know, how, how did they experience things? Um, I like to read a lot about that sort of thing and sort of keep that in my file so yeah. that whenever I cultivate the art mood, it um, that stuff comes out. That impresses me about you, too, is just how contemplative you are and deeply intentional and how much research you do. I just feel like you put a lot of thought into what you're doing and why and the meaning of it. I don't know. Is that do you th- feel like that's common? Do you feel like other people are doing that or do you feel like you're unique in that in some way? Um, well, I think it's I I mean, again, it's like it's kind of like both. I mean, there there came a point in my art career where I realized um and I think this happens to a lot of people after college where you realize that you weren't actually making the art that you really wanted to make or that was really living inside of you. You were kind of making the art that would impress your peers. In college, yeah. In college, right? right? So like when I was in college, the very best thing you could do was paint a huge painting of a head just like Jenny Seville. Okay. It was just these, ma- <laughs> and everybody was doing these massive heads just like uh, Jenny Seville, you know, like wall-sized, um, okay. loose oils, but... um when I got out of college, it took a while to kind of realize what it was that I needed to be making. And then it it came to me in this, you know, almost mystical kind of way. And then it made so much sense. And then my art career, like, really just started succeeding when I started making the work that I was ah. supposed to make. And that took, gosh, like five years. To explore and work through different styles and yeah. do different things. Yeah. Wow. So it, um, some persistence there. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, it's the compulsion. It's the, it's the, the brain parasite. It's like, I'm not going to stop. That's why it kind of makes me think of like what your teacher said to your class. It's like, it's a pretty minor thing for someone just to say something. If like, if you're that easily dissuaded from being an artist, then you probably shouldn't try. I mean, if you can't handle your teacher saying only one of you is going to make it, then you're probably not going to work for five years straight to find your the kind oh, of yeah. work you'd need to be making. You know? Exactly. And working through being, you know, completely impoverished and, yeah. you know, through illness and, and massive life erupting breakups that, mm. you know, it's like you just have to keep doing it, you know, and you have to keep doing something and you have to keep and it's like even if I couldn't work, I still like wrote down what I was thinking about yeah, yeah. Um, to save it and to, you know, make like a little corner of my bedroom, my studio until I could until I could actually work somewhere. Something. Yeah, something yeah. to keep inching along. Yeah, I think it's really important. And like I have... Um, a little internship program through my studio where I try to teach young artists about the business of becoming an artist. Cause I feel like I could have like shortened the time that it took me to get there. Really, really good. If I just, you know, if someone had just told me like, here's what you do, like Mm -hmm. do this and you'll, you know, if your work's good then, but it's that you have to keep persisting in your work. And I think it was Ira, Ira Glass from, this American Life, who yeah. said it, it was like, you know, the one thing that you really have as an artist is your taste. And the frustrating thing about being an artist when you're young is that you're making really bad work. And you know what you want your work to look like, but you're not there yet. So the best way to, to get there is to just keep making a lot of work. Yeah. Because you'll improve as you go along. 
So the more work you make, the shorter the time between like oh, yeah, right. your crappy Accelerate. work and where your where your taste wants you to be. Yeah. So is there anything notable during that five years that you can kind of see the seeds of where you are now? Yeah, and, and I know you did a lot of you, you did also did some curation and criticism to writing and. Yeah, that's right. So whenever I first got out of college, I wanted to, I wanted some success as an artist, but I knew that like nobody knew who I was and nobody really cared. But um, I knew like the one thing you have to do as an artist is you have to meet people Mm -hmm. and you have to schmooze. So when I got out of college, I decided to open an apartment gallery. It was called Red Space. And so I thought, you know, if I curate the shows then i'll meet other artists and then i'll meet people who like their work and then if i'm if i'm running you know this gallery then i also have to reach out to critics so i'll meet critics too and i was like this is a great idea very proactive so you know i'll just bring them all to my apartment (laughs) and serve them you know beer and talk to them and and that'll be easy so so that's what I did for three years. Mm. And that's that's kind of where I got my ability to be an arts writer. And um, so in between there, I, I moved to New York City and um, it went more horribly than I could have ever imagined. Oh, geez. So I left and I came back and... You went there to further your art career? Yeah. And... Can you share anything about... Sure. It well, so it was badly. like... I, so I moved up there for, for love and... That like exploded as okay. soon as, as like almost as soon as I got there, and yeah. it went so badly. And then I had spent all of my money to get up there and sold yeah. everything that I owned, right? Except for like a suitcase full of clothes. Yeah. And um. So it was more life circumstances rather than the art. New York art world rejecting I mean, you, or something. I couldn't. Well, yeah, and I mean, I couldn't really do it anyway. But like the real clincher was that I I acquired a rare genetic illness while I was oh. up there, and I became deathly ill, and I ended up in the hospital, and then. I just had to kind of do a life restart. I had no money. I had no health. Oh, I had my goodness. No, you know, like I had nothing. I, I really had no possessions at all. And so wow. I just had to start completely over. And Here I, in, back in Austin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So wow. I moved from New York and I just kind of like I, I started over, you know, and I was like, okay, well, I'm not doing that anymore. Um, <laughs> that did not work out. So now what we're going to do is... Um, figure out what I want to make. And so I just went to the art supply store like we all do whenever I finally got some money, which took a little bit of time, took about a year maybe to be able to kind of like, cause I was, I was very ill. I couldn't work at all. And so, wow. um, I mean, it, imagine going through something that like that must really, you talk about a lot in your work. It's like really puts things in perspective about like what's important and yeah, what do you really want? And how much time do we really have anyway? I mean, it's like, do you want to waste any more time? Yeah. And in those moments, like what, like how is your body connected to your spirituality? Uh, how is your, how is your life connected to that? And it's like, it wasn't until that happened to me that I had this real spiritual awakening. And then it was like, and then it was like, it all, it all meant so much. And then it was, you know, being completely on my own and like then I realized like I don't which kind of gets back to your older question I didn't want to keep making the work that I thought was going to impress other people I really wanted to make the work that 
that like my vision, like my, oh, I don't want to sound cliche, but it was like, what is my, what does my soul really want to make? Like, what is like the deepest, truest part of me asking to be created with my hands, which can't stop working. So it's um, like, why are we even here? Why are you here? You know, it's like, what are you here to create? It's like, get to the bottom of that. Yeah. Get to the bottom of it. And so, and and be fulfilled. Absolutely. And feel like if your if your vision is like like if you're like a lighthouse and your vision is the light and it's shining out, you know, illuminating the darkness, then what you know you want to make sure that it's like what that light is is like shining on the right thing, you know, that it's that it's guiding you like you like you're the ship and you're the lighthouse like it's guiding you it's guiding other people and it's it's taking them to where you want them to go and. The way that I gauge the success of my work is whenever people talk about it to me, if they tell me things that they connect to the work, you know, this this painting, I love this painting because it reminds me of when my dad got heart disease and he died and it's yeah. like his heart, you know, like I'm thinking of this painting that I made called A Cavern Within Your Heart Flooding With Water. And it was, you know, the the heart that's dying, that's flooding with water. And water is like a spiritual symbol mm-hmm. in my work that's like, you know, this transient thing that can be different states, and can be different expressions, but that water is, um, is very meaningful to that. So it's like red and blue is water and blood. And blood is, red is the physical and blue is the spiritual. And yeah. so each of my paintings is like collisions of mm. the physical and the spiritual colliding in these mm-hmm. moments and... You know, like the dying heart being filled with water, like the the spiritual realm, realm rushing in to uh, a heart mm. that is dying, you know? Yeah. So. And that makes me think, too, about your work, how you, you know, it's like our blood, our heart, and all these things that we take for granted that are working for us 24-7, but we don't really feel them necessarily. We don't mm-hmm. think about them. We don't see them. Until something terrible happens, and then exactly. you're like, and then you think about your heart all the time, or you know, or your guts, or your brain, or whatever, you know. Yeah, and you have to develop some gratitude for these things, or a yeah. lot of things, right? Yeah, absolutely. So my work it, it changed in that time, so it became really clear to me that blue was a really important color for me, and how that kind of came about was I was reading this book called the cloud of unknowing, which Mm -hmm. is an anonymous medieval text on Christian mysticism. And it reads sort of like really beautiful stereo instructions on how to encounter God. (laughs) It's very interesting. And whoever the author is really boils it down to like, here's what you need to do. Oh, wow. So I was reading this book and it talks all about the the cloud of unknowing, which is that if we're here on earth and God is up here in heaven and then there's like clouds in between us. So like imagine that the cloud is the place where you would enter. So that's the closest you could ever get to God is to enter a cloud yeah. physically. So um, the cloud of unknowing is this idea that you release all of your preconceptions about who God is, what, what God is, how God is, all of these things, just release it all and just completely surrender yourself to unknowing, to lack of knowledge. And that entering that sort of state of this cloud of unknowing is the first step. Like that's the first way that you will actually encounter 
that you'll actually have a mystical encounter. Mm-hmm. And so at the same time as reading this book, I was really interested in this weather phenomenon that I'd heard about called Garua. And Garua is a um, super dense, low-hanging cloud that's completely transparent. And they're common in the Andes Mountains and rainforest and that kind of thing. And so, like, there could be a Garua right here in this room, and you wouldn't even know it was there, except that if you passed your body through it, you would become soaking wet. Because you can't see it, but it's super dense. Whoa. So it's like this invisible cloud. So then it was like, oh, the the cloud of unknowing is like the garua and like entering the garua. Like, and that's how spirituality is. It's completely invisible. You, you, you don't, but it's completely real. You don't know it's there except if you experience it. Yeah. So the blue then kind of worked its way into my work, which was previously pretty monochromatic and red. Okay. So I mainly just did red and white work and I was always really interested in um, using color as a conceptual force to kind of speak about stuff so my work always kind of had a lot of white around it but it was always red so um, because I was really thinking about the same thing but I didn't have this other component so it was like the body surrounded with this like existential void and now it's like these spirituality moments you know it's, it's changed but it's the same and that's kind of where my where my work went following my my New York fallout years. Yeah. Worst year of my life. <laughs> what year was that? 2014. Okay. And so what does the last 4 years look like then? Well, it's it's been good. So then um making that kind of work, it all of a sudden people really liked it and they wanted to buy it and that was a new feeling for the Yeah. for kind of the previously starving artist. Um, just kind of schlepping around all of my work thinking it had value. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I didn't sell anything before I would, but it just was pretty infrequent. So now, uh, like I said, I just, I picked up some collectors and they told their friends about it. And I also actively sought out avenues for the work. I became kind of interested in how, like how are art collections actually made? Hmm. And so just kind of like thinking about well, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to have a day job forever. I'd really like to do this. Um, and yeah. I think I could, if I can just kind of like unlock the piece of like, how do people buy art? And not like just regular folks, because I love it when they buy art, but it's like selling one piece of art to somebody is not as sustainable as finding people who buy art in mass and then add it to collections. Right. So that's where, that's where like the corporate collection part of my work comes in. And I love that because I don't have to lose any integrity about what I do. Like, no one tells me what to make or what it's supposed to be. I don't do that kind of thing. But it gets sold to medical institutions and hotels and retail places. And I think it's really just because there are two components to the work that it's conceptually authentic and that it's aesthetically really strong, you yeah. know, and it's like, that's the work and then that's the vision that are together and they're like much when they've matured then then you know it's it's gold you know you've made yeah you've made good work what did you figure out if you don't mind sharing about this this whole world of these collections there is a whole world of people who buy art for corporate places like hotels and retail places and medical institutions and like it's a way for them to 
like maybe they're wealthy and they bought they buy art as a collection and they donate it or is it actually it's like more of kind of a it's more of a commercial thing okay. really okay. um so it's interior designers and art consultants architects those people really buy art and there are new buildings that are being created that need art. I mean, yeah. every every building that you go into has art, whether or not you notice it. You only notice it if it's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you go into a doctor's office and it's like the most boring well, rando yeah. landscape that's, you know, like a, you know, cheaply printed, cheaply framed, you just, you don't even see it. And I started to see where the good oh, art was. Right. You know, you just you you open your eyes and you look around and then you say, "Oh my gosh, I've been shopping at Neiman Marcus forever." Just you know, or I've been I've been coming here to buy perfume once a year for Christmas, and I never even noticed that they have this huge collection of original art in the Neiman Marcus. Oh wow! Okay, so how do we get Neiman Marcus to buy some art? Yeah. How do we? How do I figure out who that person is that buys that art? It's just the hustle you're talking about. You're just out looking researching and then contacting people and yeah absolutely and i mean you know getting an assistant or hiring somebody or trading with somebody to make a hundred phone calls for you in a month i mean that's Mm. something i've done i mean i i hired one of my friends who's who's actually really amazing her name is selena zisman and she's a entrepreneur consultant like a creative entrepreneur consultant and her work for me is invaluable. And I actually hired her to say, okay, so these are the markets that are interesting to me. So Austin, obviously Houston, Dallas, and then Atlanta and Santa Fe. Would you just spend, you know, can I pay you, put you on a contract for three months to call every single interior designer in in all those cities and just tell them about my work Mm. and just invite them to look at my website. Wow. And so that's what I did, you know? And it was a investment, right? but it wasn't a huge one. And it was like, okay, if I sell one painting, then I'll get my money back. So that's what I had to do. So that's definitely worth it. And then like just scouring. I mean, because the gallery thing was always so hard for me. I could never figure out how to get a gallery to be interested in my work. You know, I go to all the openings. I try to talk to the, and I invite people and it never worked. And I was like, okay, fine. I'm just going to do what galleries do, which is just try to find collectors for the work. Just like, um, and they're not going to be regular folks because those are few and far between and they'll buy one thing and then they're done forever. And maybe if they really like it, they'll buy another one later, but that might be like five years later. So it's like, you have to look for the sustainable income stream. That's, you know, it's the hustle, like you said, but it's strategic because you don't just want to like hustle and waste your time and like be one of those people that sends an email, you know, the identical email to a thousand people because you know what that feels like because yeah. you've gotten an email like that and you're like, dude, that's there. You don't even care what I do. Right. <laughs> so it's more like, again, you know, it's like actually doing the work, but being strategic about it. Like, you know, like I never wanted to contact a place that, you know, like maybe like the Atheist Society of America. I'm not going to call them to right. to like decorate their building because that's not what my work's about and that wouldn't work there. So, I mean, nothing, nothing against them. I mean, yeah. at all. Well, you just it's have just, to know where you fit. It's kind of like, okay, that's not interesting because that's not going to work. And then the other thing is like, I'm not going to call art art consultants who outfit hotel rooms. Because I never want to see my work in a hotel room. Oh, okay. 
So and the, and those and those people will get you because they'll say like, okay, well we'll offer you eighty bucks a print, and we've got three hundred hotel rooms. What is that? How do you feel about that? And I mean, that's kind of like a really tough one, but that's like garbage. No, I never want to see three hundred prints of my work because then it has no meaning. It's not. No one will encounter that and think, my God, this is speaking to me about something. They're yeah. like. Here I am at the Hilton checking in, or I don't know if I'm allowed to say Hilton, but yeah, um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but like, here's the weird art that's on the wall in the contemporary hotel. You know, I yeah. didn't want it to be a part of it. I d- never wanted to be a decoration specifically. So, so you have some kind of rules and integrity around where the work ends. Well, up yeah, and- absolutely. I mean, y- you have to, otherwise, you know, you just you end up printing thousands of copies of something, and it and it doesn't actually end up with anyone who will appreciate it. Yeah. So, um, and what came of, uh, that woman calling all those interior designers? It made it so that now, whenever, whenever I have something interesting to, whenever I have a lead with like an interior designer or something, if I call them, they're like, Oh yeah, I've heard of your work. Because my theory is that if like someone hears about you three times and they, then they really take you seriously. So it's like the first time they're like, don't even notice the second time they're like oh i think i've heard of that and then the third time they're like wow this person's famous you know (laughs) you know so it's like try to figure out a way for someone to hear about you three different times like you know my someone calls on my behalf or someone emails and and then somebody you know they read about me in a magazine that's like you know and i with my pr agency i target interior design magazines Because it's like, I want the people who place work sustainably to notice my work. And so it's like, art magazines are interesting, but who reads art magazines? Well, artists do. Well, artists aren't really interested in buying art. (laughs) They've got enough. I mean, so again, it's like strategic. And it's like, I want my art to live in living rooms and hospitals and educational institutions it's like i want it to live places i don't it's not meant to just like sit in my studio yeah so you do prints but you just don't want to do 300 prints in one hotel i mean you'll do yeah i mean prints are kind of prints are kind of tricky because i don't really do them um but i do have an exclusive contract with a company here in town called wonderwall Uh that makes uh reproductions of my work and those are not I wouldn't even call them prints. I've seen them in person and they, it's like they're printed inside of acrylic and they look like very ethereal. I mean, it's like they've created art from my art. And then they sell those in different options. They do retail, certainly. So they, um, so then my, this exclusive collection. And what that was is 30 paintings that I made just for them that no one else will ever own because I never wanted my collectors to see their work somewhere else. Yeah. I felt like that would, I mean, that would really depress me if I spent a lot of money on a painting and then somebody else saw it um, or somebody else owned it for a lot less than I paid for it. So they do these high quality reproductions of these 30 paintings that are, that I made just for them Mm -hmm. and they don't do any other prints of my work. I mean, and they're really not prints. It's like, they are these like objects. Yeah, they're art objects in and of themselves. And I'll actually have a show um, on October 4th this year where I'm going to show the originals and reproductions together. And it's going to be a really fabulous party for sure. But what's more interesting for me is to show like, here's the original and then here's whenever they 
printed it on a piece of gold that's six feet high you know like really awesome reproductions um i don't know if they're actually going to do that one but that's something that they're able to do and it's incredible and then they sell that kind of work so they've kind of closed the market between like the cheap prints that hotels would buy like you know a thousand of them for whatever hotel rooms and the art advisors who will be able to place work but only with people who have a very large budget for art so what they do is it's kind of like in the middle. It's very artistic, extremely high quality. It's not cheap. And then they put it in places. Um, they put it in places, uh, corporate collections, and then also um, they sell them individually. And then they also do uh, retail kind of places. So they sell it in all kinds of different options. And I think it's a I think it's a really cool thing what they're doing. So that's the only kind of print thing that I do. Yeah. But that's just like one part of your, you know, sources of income that you've right. created, like diversi- yeah. you've diversified your career, I would assume. Yeah, absolutely. It's like you got to do the things that, you know, it's like, like whenever you have a show, you have like a little thing that costs, you know, yeah. a couple hundred bucks. You have a bigger thing that costs $500. You have a, you know, and then you have like the real show stoppers that are, you know, $10,000. Yeah. And you hope that you'll sell them. But if not, you'll sell a lot of the little things yeah. because the showstopper will help you sell those smaller things. Well, tell me about the choice to start using a PR firm because I don't, I don't, I've never heard of an artist <laughs> now using a PR firm. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was so impressed when you first told me about that because you had an opening of your work at a university some hours from here mm-hmm. or some hours from the PR firm, and a woman from the firm actually went there. Mm-hmm. and met you and made sure you had all the right photos and everything. I was yeah. like pretty impressed with that. <laughs> so I work with a PR company called the CKP Group, and they are incredible. They are really, really good. And they they do, they show up to everything. I mean, when I had the collection um, for Angelo State up here, right. um, so that was 30 original paintings for a medical school out in San Angelo. It was an incredible acquisition for yeah. me personally. I mean, 30 original paintings for and, wow. and then but also it was incredible because this university in rural West Texas has this incredible art and I I mean I can't say that I mean UT does certainly have an incredible art collection but not all the universities that I know of would spend that kind of money. So they had a architecture firm called PBK. But anyway, CKP group it just makes so much less work for me because I don't have to be the one that's like contacting everyone. And it also doesn't really look as good to be the one contacting everyone on your own behalf. Yeah. And it's an incredible thing to use a PR company because you don't realize how many things that you do for yourself as an artist that you really wish you weren't doing, like making sure they have headshots of you and pictures and making sure that all of the critics in town were notified that you're having a show and making sure that all of the wider publications were aware that you're whatever you're doing with your career. Yeah. So instead of spending all that time contacting all those people and making all those things happen, you can hire an agency who will make those things happen for you. And I've certainly seen some really good fruits from using the PR company. I think it's absolutely worth it. My decision to start using it was that I did that program here in town called Artist Inc. That one of the presenters was David Wyatt 
of the Wyatt brand, which was a former creative PR company here in Mm -hmm. town, and they've merged with some other company. He just presented on like doing PR as an artist. And I realized that I was doing all of those things and more. Yeah. And then so I was just curious. So I just said, okay, well, like, let me call the office and schedule a meeting and see what they think they could do. If nothing else, it's like that whole thing where if somebody hears about you three times, they think you're famous. Like all of these writers throughout the country have now at least heard of me. Yeah. So I feel like the payoff is it's a, it can be a little frustrating because it's not an immediate payoff. Like you don't immediately start seeing things. And, but sometimes you do. I mean, sometimes you like the local publications certainly picked up a lot of the things that they put out there. And, and ultimately it's about creating a sustainable career, telling people about your work, especially for me as an artist. I, like you said, I, I, I tend to be very contemplative and introverted and I don't, I don't like to do all of that stuff. I schmoozed a lot in my youth and went to a lot of openings and had a lot of fun and drank a lot of free beer. Yeah. But it was like, I wanted to not have to do that. And now you're doing your career full time, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, you don't have another job. No, um, that's what I do. And I mean, that feels like such an accomplishment, I have to say, because it was my, it was my dream for so long and it was something I really wanted to do. And it just... It just took the time and the work and, and then lots of help too. Like I said, um, I'm, I am so happy if I can afford it to hire people to do things for me, if they can do it better than I can. Yeah. I definitely learned that you should learn to do as many things on your own as you can so that you don't have to rely on other people to help you. But for me, it's like, I feel like I don't like, I have no skill for framing. So I hire someone else to do that. So you went from four years ago, starting with nothing to mm-hmm. now yeah yeah and that is amazing and i mean i i do pretty well for myself i mean i eat at a lot of restaurants so i'm not starving <laughs> <laughs> but um but just when you think about like when you were at the depth of that low there oh I my mean, gosh can you even imagine that you would be where you are right now i mean no because i thought my life was over i really did i mean i thought i was gonna be a sick person forever nobody would love me because i was a sick person my art was never going to succeed because I had no money. I had no studio. No one even knew because I left New York. Like everyone thought I was a failure. Yeah. The whole thing. But it's like now I'm, you know, I'm doing my dream. I'm working full time as an artist and I'm getting married in October. So someone yeah. loves me, and, <laughs> right. you know, <laughs> and, um, and yeah, it's like, it's a, it's a good life. But I think that the strongest component of that was just that I, allowed myself to to really follow my vision to really really listen and just be like I'm not I'm not I'm not not interested in doing that what everybody else is doing or what's popular or what's trendy or what they're teaching in art school I just which was hard for me because I you know getting rid of the intellectual part seemed like throwing the baby out and not the bathwater kind of thing it seemed really bad but um but then it was like whenever whenever you have nothing and you're just a f- really emotional, then that's what comes out. So, I mean, mm. and again, it's like in my work as an artist, cultivating that place of emptiness, cultivating that place where that completely surrendering part of me, when it's what that feels like is when the fox comes in my backyard and when yeah. that's whenever the really good art happens. Hmm. So I'm curious then you mentioned earlier that you 
I mean, you're talking about hiring people and having interns and Mm -hmm. you said that you, especially if they're artists, you want to try to save them some of the pain and anguish you went through and figuring (laughs) things out. What are some of the things that you share with them? Well, I, I tell you what, the very first thing that I always teach my interns, which is very helpful to me, is I teach them how um, I use archiving software for everything. And I use a program called Artwork Archive. Oh. And I love them. And I don't work for them. I don't get any payoffs. But I think every every single artist should have Artwork Archive. I've never heard of that. It is incredible. It is the most useful tool besides the garbage can that I've ever had in my okay. studio. It, um, so it's a piece of software that basically um, you pay an, uh, you pay a subscription fee and you upload piece, pictures of your um, up your, of your art and then it's and then it creates a, uh, an inventory number for an, a unique inventory number price a retail price wholesale price medium uh, what what's it of so I use that to kind of track like rectangles versus orbs versus loops like what's what's selling the best you can create um an invoice um you can create a certificate of authenticity it registers a sale then it creates whenever you do taxes um like when you do sales taxes you i just go in and i enter the sales period and then it brings it up it shows me how much i sold how much i collected in sales tax so easy it really helps with record keeping to see how many paintings sold to whom, where do they live now? That's something oh, like, wow. where is the painting physically? Um, who bought it? Under what circumstances? Like I usually put notes like, I sold this during my VIP party last year. I sold this whenever um, an interior designer came for a, a visit yeah. to Canopy and saw lots of studios, but she was she bought this. So, yeah. um, And then you can study all that? All that data, I suppose. Yeah, you can. You can absolutely study all of it. But what's even more useful is that if you want to start dealing with interior designers and architects and art consultants and stuff like this, the most important thing you can do as an artist is be like really organized and really... um, Because if, if they send you like... Can you give me an idea of your prices? And you were like, well, I have this one that's $1,000, but I have this other one. And here's like a picture I took with my cell phone. It's a wreck. But if you send them to your public page of your artwork archive, it has everything inventoried so they can see what is already sold, how much it is, you know, if it's available or not. Um, And like, let's say that she's um, only interested in hearts for her clients so she can type in search hearts. And since I've put that tag on the ones that are hearts, all the hearts come up. Oh, wow. So there's a public facing yeah, you can actually you can... check it out now if you want to look at it. But um, it, so it, it inventories everything. So that is my that is kind of like what runs my business is the oh. artwork archive um, keeps all of the inventory current. And I teach the interns about this because so many artists are just tragically disorganized. And I am too. But when I got this program, it, it, it was a real game changer because even though I had to do months of data entry to get caught up. Once I did, it was so powerful. So, um, so I love doing that. I think that's so much better than whatever I was doing before, which I I don't even know what I was doing before, but it was bad. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, have a folder of JPEGs and like, try to keep like a a word document of like what everything is. And it's like, that's, oh wow. so I also know who all my collectors are. I have information about them that I, and so then whenever I go to do like a VIP party, which is something I like to do where I invite 
collectors only and I give them a little discount and I invite them to the studio for a preview of like brand new work or something like that. Yeah. I can actually look at my list of collectors and invite them specifically and I have their, you know, names and addresses and everything. And you know what they like. I know what they like. I know what they bought before. And so I can say, you know, again, don't send the email to a thousand people, but say, oh, hey there, Charlie. I I noticed that you had, you know, like I'm wondering if you still love this painting. Uh, Listen, I've got another one that I think you'd really like. And here's a little preview of it. But I'd love for you to come to this party and have some champagne with me and just see what I've been working on. It would really yeah. mean a lot to me. And yeah, you're good about that kind of thing. <laughs> try to be. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, so that's what you do. You um, and, and and I mean it is. It's like it's about relationships, though. It's not as much about sales. It's like cultivating these relationships with these people. And then you know, interior designers like to work with you if you have something like our work archive because it's easy. They can easily look up things. They don't have to email you, wait two days and get something in return. But then they're like, oh, but that's not exactly what I wanted. I wanted something else. Or do you have anything else like that? And you're like, oh, I don't have any pictures of the things that are like that. It's just being organized and that just makes everything easier. Sharing. Yeah. 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 And I mean, it makes it even if you're disorganized, it will be organized for you. Right. So as long as you keep... So I teach the interns that. That's the first thing I teach them. And then um, I have them help me with uh, getting ready for shows and learning about, okay, so whenever you send a piece off, what, you know, here's how you, here's how you would um, really do a good job at, you know, making someone happy with your work is we wrap everything in plastic and then we make sure it's labeled and dated and then we make sure that there's a certificate of authenticity in there in case someone buys it and the whole thing so it's just like how to have really good presentation and then I certainly have them help me with collector relations and social media is a big thing so um yeah I want to get into that for sure yeah social media I really, I really hate that so much. <laughs> I actually quit doing Facebook a couple of months ago because I was like, I hate this so much. But Aww. I know it's really, it's really sad. I think I still advertise with them, but <laughs> it's, um, but I mainly do Instagram now. And that's something else that I've learned. That's like, if you don't want to do it and you don't have a heart for it, just don't do it, you yeah, know? Yeah. So I really love using Instagram. I mean, Personally, I think it's an interesting social media platform. And, yeah, it's my favorite, for and sure. And most artists, it is. It's your favorite. Um, and then professionally, it actually helps you. Like, I've actually sold paintings because of Instagram. I've heard a lot of feedback from people about that, too. So, Instagram ads, you know, spend $30 to promote something and see who, who grabs at it. And then, like, you can do some other things, like checking out, like, who... Okay, so again, like, strategic kind of looking and marketing okay so there's this interior designer in Atlanta and she really likes sort of contemporary work and it seems like she has sort of an interest in spirituality so I'm gonna go and send her a little message and say hey this is who I am and what I do I love you know I love your designs but you have to be honest you know and and genuine yeah if you don't love what they're doing then don't tell them you know yeah yeah yeah. and don't contact them because I mean it's not going to work so just reaching out to pe- other people who I think are doing interesting things and 
helping other people too, helping other artists, helping promote what they're doing and, and just being more collaborative about it. Um, and then using using ads, that's an important thing. It's like you have to allocate a certain amount of budget to do that. But um, even if you start and your budget, your monthly budget is like $20 a month, figure out what people like and why they like it and then make something like that. Make a little Instagram about um, like, are people most interested in the story? Are people most interested in the technique? Are people most interested whenever I post a circle? Are you doing like A-B testing at all? or? Oh, if I was really good, I would be doing all of that. But I, I don't. I mean, I kind of like just go with what I think is working. Yeah. You know, I'm like, this is really working for me. This, uh, These hearts are really cool right now. So I'm going to do that, promote it for a couple of weeks, switch to something else, and just like try to keep things going. But also there's this really interesting thing that happens too whenever you spend a certain amount of money with Facebook, they'll actually let you make an appointment with a marketing specialist from Facebook. Wow. And so I like made an appointment and um hi, I have no idea what I'm doing, but oh, can you help me? <laughs> and she's like, okay. So then they give you this wealth of information. Then they're like, okay, did you know that you can do this? Do you know how to create an audience? No, I don't know how to create an audience. What's that? Okay, so here's how you create an audience. You think about people that are interested in something that you want them to be interested in. So um, I'm having a show in Houston, and I'm interested in targeting people who like art. What other thing could people like that... They might like what I'm doing, and they might like to see an ad about it. Oh, there's a really big art museum in Houston. Yeah. So target right. people who like the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. So that's kind of yeah. how I do that. Are and the are the Instagram ads created the same way Facebook ads are? Is it no. kind of the same interface? Or? Oh. The Instagram is much easier to do. Oh, nice. Uh, Facebook has a whole, it's called Ads Manager. Yeah, I've been and in there. Oh yeah, it's you go complex. in there and you wish you wish you didn't. You, it's like you've you've gone to a party where everybody knows what's going on except you. And <laughs> did you just find that you weren't getting any traction on Facebook, or you just? No, nah, it was more of a personal decision. I just okay. I just didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> I was just I felt like it was not like personally very rewarding. So I mean, I, I feel like I'll st- I'll come back to it, but maybe I, maybe it's just a hiatus. But no, the Facebook ads work. They really do. So. Um, for example, I sold um, a lot of work to Kendra Scott, the the jewelry tycoon here in town, yeah. self-made woman, and she loved my work, and she put it in her headquarters, and she put it in some of her retail stores, and so I thought, well, if Kendra Scott really likes my work, I bet some of her customers would really like my work. So you go in Ads Manager, and you create an audience and again, I really encourage everybody to like talk to the Facebook expert people because I, I feel like I, I'm just like a toddler and I have no idea, but I just do what they tell me to do. So I create an audience of people who love Kendra Scott jewelry who also like art somehow. So figuring out, you know, I want to target people in Atlanta, this market that I'm interested in, who like Kendra Scott, who also like art. So find a way to make that little audience and then make an ad just for them where I show them pictures of them installed in Kendra Scott's headquarters. Oh, yeah. You know, like, hey, would you like to collect the art that is in a Kendra Scott store? You know, (laughs) check out my website. I mean, of course, something a little more finessed than that. Right. But it's the same kind of idea. And so again, it's just like keeping track of who's buying the art, why they're buying it, and what's, you know, what's working and what's not. And then 
going back to do marketing kind of in that same vein. Like, why does it work? Who are the people that are interested in it? So that's yeah. kind of how I do my, my ads. Yeah, and you also, I thought it was interesting, like on your shop, this everyone's a collector, You, it seems like you're kind of trying to encourage kind of regular folks. Yeah. Kind of help, trying to help educate them about being an art collector too. Like, yeah. Tell me about your philosophy around that. It's- well, I think one of the things that discourages people from art collection is one, they think everything's just way too expensive. Like they can never afford art. That's only for really fancy people. And two, that they don't actually know how to buy art or why. So it's like, you know, you can like something because it's beautiful and, but why do you want to own it? So I try to do this. I try to educate people about the art buying process. Yeah. And then by creating an online shop, I try to make it look more familiar to them. Like, here's how you would normally buy something online through like an online shop Yeah. with, you know, the, the whole thing. So instead of buying, instead of buying art, like having to come to my studio, now people can buy it online. And I have attracted some people from Instagram to my online shop to buy some things yeah. and that's worked. So um, I want to learn how to be better at it. I really do. It, it takes a lot of work to run the online mm. shop. It's a lot of overhead. Yeah. And I also teach my interns how to run the online shop, how to like put in the price of everything and the shipping and make sure that it, it's a, it's it's a lot. But um but education to regular folks, to the people that I meet in my community outside of the art community about how the art buying process works, that works really well. So just explaining to people like, "Oh, this is how you would buy a painting from me." Well, you would look at the painting and if you like it, you can tell me about it. And like a lot of people don't know that they can also like negotiate the price. Yeah. But art collectors do because I mean, I'm sure you know, they'll say, well, you know, some of them want discounts. So you just know that they'll ask for a discount and you know, we're usually okay with it. But a lot of people don't know that you can negotiate on the price. Well, I actually have, I was just thinking of this question because I feel like I've talked to a lot of artists in Austin that kind of lament it's like, okay, there's so many people in Austin, people that live downtown and these condo buildings or whatever. There's a lot of people here that have mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. It's like, how do we educate them about buying art or how do we get them interested in buying art or how do we get them around the art? You know what I mean? Have you ever have yeah. you not had these conversations too? I mean, do you have any ideas about oh, that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> it's like... I mean, I know it's everything you've been talking about, but I'm just more specifically, I'm just thinking of this one, sure. co- these conversations. I've yeah, been absolutely. With people. The the lamentations about how do you get those people to buy art? I mean, that's something we can lament about. But, you know, if you think about it, like the Austonian, yeah, they have an exactly. incredible art collection with local artists inside of it. I actually have a friend that lives at the Austonian who I met and you know, out in the world, completely separate from the art world. She's not an art collector. Yeah. But, you know, when I went to visit her for the first time, I was like, oh, my gosh, there's Roy James. I love Roy James. Oh, I love him so much. His work is so meaningful. Look at this, Laura. Look how this works. And and then, oh, look, there's... um. Oh, gosh, I'm going to like blank because I feel like I'm put on the spot to remember all these oh, artist names. Right. But it was like all these local artists and the, like Kate Brakey. They had like yeah. one of her paintings or one of her photographs 
but it was not one of the good ones. And so I was telling Laura, like, oh, see, this is just like a boring picture of a tumbleweed. But what she normally does are these amazing nighttime portraits of animals. <laughs> and, you know, just like, wow, I never, that's so cool that you know all these people in here. And, you know, just kind of like, yeah, you know. And Outreach. <laughs> I guess that's true. Yeah, but I mean, she's she's my friend. And so it's not like selling to her. It's just, you know, talking about art, you know, something I love. And it's like, if you want to meet collectors, like go outside of the world that you're in and like what, you know, whatever you're interested in. And like those people are because we're all we're all interested in aesthetic experiences and people really do love art, but they just might not know how how you buy it or why you would buy it. I mean, a lot of people don't know that art's an investment that you can actually you know, like my collectors, I love to tell them, you know, my work went up in value by about 50% in the last two years. So your little painting that you bought for me when I was a nobody is now worth twice as much. Yeah. And they love to hear that, especially the regular people that oh. aren't in the art world. They're like, wow. So I bought this for $300 and now it's, now it's worth $600. Like, yeah, it totally is. And it's going to keep going up in value. Yeah. And I think that's another really important thing to remind people of that arts and investment, that your career is growing, that your value is going up and that their piece of you that they own is um, growing and changing, too. And that, I mean, with like the money, I mean, like not everybody cares about the money, but it still feels nice to know yeah. that it's not like a car that, de- you know, that you're like throwing money out the window every time you drive it because it's <laughs> depreciating. Right. It's like. You can you can buy a sofa and it'll be dead in five years. Like it'll be gross and like full of dog hair and stuff. But a painting that costs as much as a sofa will never lose its value and never lose its beauty. And it will it will in fact grow in value and yeah. it will be something that will um, enrich your life forever. And if you want to sell it, then you could sell it. But it's um but do that you, it's meaning it's a meaningful purchase. So what do you? What do you have going on in the near future, and what's the f- future look like for you, if you want to talk about that? Yeah, um, well, let's see. I guess I'm, I'm closing a show this weekend in Houston called Light in the Window, so I'll be doing an artist talk there. And then, um, and then the next thing is my show at Wonderwall on October 4th, which I'm very excited about. I think that's going to be an incredible show. I'm so excited to see these reproductions yeah. be produced. And everybody should come see that, because I think it's, an amazing future of art too to think about like okay you can make prints of your art or you could think about like these crazy reproductions that are like as big as your imagination yeah so i think that's going to be really good and that's also going to show the originals and i'm super thrilled so they're going to put the originals into these kind of environments that they create with their reproductions too and then we'll have the East Austin studio tour here at Canopy. Yes. And it'll be a party. <laughs> it'll be thousands of people. <laughs> oh my gosh. I This will be my first year doing East at Canopy, and I don't know if I'm excited or terrified about it. Um, it's going to be, yeah, a lot of people. So that's coming up. And then I think I, I usually take a break after East for a couple of months, and then and then I'm going to do a collaboration with the Austin Classical Guitar next year. Hmm. Um yeah, and I have a lot of shows coming up. You can check out my website, cgmccollum.com, and I always have my current event listings. Try to try to keep that up to date, and yeah, I send a newsletter out once a month. So yeah, we should well, sign no. up for that. Yeah, sign up for the newsletter, and because um, sometimes I also offer like little discounts on things, and 
through my store and I, you know, invite people to events that I do and that kind of thing. Yeah. Nice. And I try to keep it, um, you know, it's just one once a month and I try to keep it interesting. Um, not just, you know, rattling off what I've done and what I'm doing, you know? (laughs) Right. Nice. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting collaborations coming up and things for 2019 that I think are going to be really exciting. And I'm really, um, yeah. <laughs> nice. Thinking about all of those things coming up. Like, yeah, oh my gosh. Exciting, right? oh, I oh, gotta it's do- daunting. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot of PR to do for that. Oh, wait. Oh. I just have to tell Julia about it and she'll do it. Oh, um, that is something. So I'm doing the, the FAM Abstract Show this East also, which is with. Um, there's um, four artists that they that they have, and then it, there's an open call for a larger show. But it's um, I'm going to be showing alongside one of my favorite Austin artists, who's Stella Alessi. And yeah, she's incredible. So we're gonna have it's it's gonna be a it's gonna be at that big warehouse off Springdale. So nice. Yeah, so that's what's coming up for me. All kinds of stuff. Very nice. Well, thanks, Caitlin, for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. sharing everything. And I'm sure if anyone has any questions, they could just reach out to you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always happy to um, help people that want to learn more about art business or come see the studio. Or So, I mean, I'm happy to give all the secrets away, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just tell people how to do it. And more, more people being artists is, is a beautiful thing. More people being artists that are making money is yeah. wonderful. Yeah, they can make a living at it and be successful. Yeah, it's good for the economy. It's good for everyone's spirit, you know? Like, it's good for it's good for Austin, you know? So, yeah, I, I think agree. it's... All right. Well, thanks. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and colleagues and consider giving it a review on iTunes. That could help others find it and motivate them to give it a try. At austinarttalk.com, you can visit each episode's webpage to find links related to the relevant and interesting people, places, and things mentioned by each guest. And thanks to those who have reached out with encouragement and positive feedback. I really appreciate it. All the best to you and take care.